Now, had we used this ending, we certainly would have shortened it also. But we never got to that stage where we had the opportunity to hone it down. In 2013, two videos were released by Great Movies on Vimeo. The videos? A two-part compilation of scenes and shots cut from low shot performers. The uploader, going by the name John Smith, swore they were from the cut of the film shown to preview audiences, and included in their upload the long-sought-after Meek Shall Inherit verse, of which Frank Oz swears was cut before previews took place, and an alternate edit of the finale, which runs just three minutes shorter than the released cut. A full work print also showed up in training circles soon after, though the edit is incomplete and ends before Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. So, when I went to DC and found a collection of low shop work prints in the Howard Ashman archive, I made sure to check out every single one. And one, dated August 22nd, 1986, and noted as being the complete work print with original ending, I took special interest in. Running just under an hour and 28 minutes, the work print is almost identical to the final film, up to a point. However, similarities to the John Smith footage and full work print include a cutline from Audrey in her opening scene, You don't make nice boys when you live on Skid Row, Mr. Mushnick. Along with her, It's just a daydream of mine, monologue during Somewhere on the Screen, though now properly underscored. Some fun now featuring the extra verse included on the film soundtrack, along with an alternate edit of the feeding montage, a longer edit on Seymour transporting and preparing Orrin's corpse, with an alternate edit on the morning after, an extension on Mushnick's death during supper time, Audrey following Seymour out of the shop after his outburst during the television shoot, and the original proposal scene. We'll go to Alaska! Noticeably missing? The cut verse in The Meek Shall Inherit, which is edited exactly as it is in the final film. The August 22nd work print is also missing the urchin didn't grow for me and John Candy's extra improvisation before Seymour's interview on WSKID included in the leaked material, as well as Seymour's cut exit line in Grow For Me. I guess a few drops couldn't hurt, as long as you don't make a habit out of it or anything. That's included in various work prints in the Howard Ashman archive. On the topic of what's included in the film's work prints, one quick aside. It's believed that there is a deleted shot of Seymour feeding the plant, based on a description in the screenplay of a distressed Seymour lifting up Orrin's head frozen in a stupid grin and dumping it into the plant's pod, along with a promotional photo showing just that, Seymour lifting up and presenting Orrin's grinning, disembodied head. Though a variation of the shot is present in various work prints, with Orrin's head shown only from the back, and while likely filmed, the shot of Orrin's head smiling to the camera is not included in any work prints I had access to, and was likely scrapped very early on. And then there's the ending, which, along with featuring sound effects and Levi Stubbs vocals not used in the director's cut, features that trimming down and polishing Frank has mentioned not being able to do. Using the same basic structure as the release cut, the entire thing was slashed and edited to within an inch of its life, starting with Seymour's rescue of Audrey, cut down to about one shot, continuing into Don't Feed the Plants, completely cutting the subsequent to the event's prologue, as well as the urchin's entire involvement in the finale altogether, instead just underscoring the marketing craze of Audrey 2 with the song proper. As the film ends and Audrey 2 bursts through the screen, it takes the opportunity to make one final mocking joke. That's all, folks. No, I did not just edit in a Looney Tunes joke just for the hell of it. The plant bursts through the screen and says, That's all, folks, and laughs. And I'm kind of mad that isn't the version we got, but I digress. Also cut, one of the most memorable moments in the original ending, the reprise of Somewhere That Screen, where Audrey comforts Seymour and tells him that feeding her to the plant is for the best. And so, what does this work print tell us? 
Well, one thing for certain, the idea of which was already floating around thanks to John Smith's workprint footage. It tells us that the ending to the director's cut is likely not the ending that was shown to the preview audiences, and that the black and white dupes used as a basis for the restoration are early rough cuts. So, why not use the final edit? It's possible that Warner Brothers, and Frank Oz himself, didn't have access to or even know there were later cuts of the ending. Human memory is very unreliable, the human brain is very good at creating narrative memories but not accurate ones, and the process of recalling a memory often changes it. And it's entirely possible that the materials pulled for the original DVD were from collections not including later edits, and Frank just doesn't remember them. Remember what he said at the 1989 American Puppetry Festival? We never made a dupe of it, a copy of it. We never did, so it doesn't exist, except in video form, and I think only two people have that, and I don't even know who those are. I think David Geffen has one and someone else has another. I don't even have one myself. When putting together the director's cut, they might have been kept as the basis simply because the original DVD release included everything but the kitchen sink, and it was felt that using anything else would make fans feel cheated considering how much had been cut. That is, if these later edits were even known about at all. What does it tell us about the previews? Really, without a date for either, and I have looked far and wide, nothing. Was the cut included in the John Smith footage shown to both preview audiences, and the August 22nd workprint a final push to make everything work? Was the August 22nd workprint a reaction to the first audience, and shown to the second audience? Since it was Howard's personal copy, and he was based in the States and production was based in England, was it sent to him to help with the film's rewrites? The one thing we can use to glean any possible context is this. The first dated breakdown of material to be shot during additional shooting, including material for the revised ending, is dated August 18th, 1985, four days before the date of the work print. And so we come to the question, why did the original ending not work for the test audiences? Was it just not set up well? Was it too overblown? Can we just blame it on 80s audiences? While speaking about his failed musical Leap of Faith in a 2012 interview, Alan stated, I know from working on Broadway musicals where you have a problem, and you try to fix it, and you try to fix it, and you try to fix it, sometimes you can't fix it, and you go, okay, there's something intrinsically wrong, and it could be years before you figure out what. Frank has a theory, though, as quoted in the 1998 LA Times piece. I learned my lesson. In the play, when the two main characters die, they come out for a curtain call. Movies don't have curtain calls. Those characters are dead. Movies take you on a very personal journey. It gets down to the power of the tight shot. All your senses on one image, the human face, and the camera brings out very subtle human emotions. The director and editor force you to look at an image, and that image isn't an inch high, it's 10 feet high. Alan's thoughts follow along the same lines, saying in 2012, It's cinema versus theater. When it's a nine-foot Muppet in a little tiny theater, it's one thing. When it's on the big screen, it's just another thing. And it's anybody's guess as to why, but it has to do with people's associations more than anything else, and how they connect to film. As for which is preferable, it's forever up for debate. With Frank pretty much making it clear which version he likes on his commentary track. And then we tagged a little special thing here. We have The End, which is very old-fashioned 1950s, and then the plant breaks through the screen and laughs at the audience. It was pretty effective, actually. But... We couldn't use any of it, because the audience just didn't want to see it this way. They wanted happy. And I love this ending. Alan's thoughts are a bit less cut and dry, 
saying on Show People that everyone involved with the original stage show has more or less the same opinion. The stage show is Little Shop of Horrors. The movie is an adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors, and one that had to make fundamental changes in it to work. When asked specifically which ending he prefers, the one that was actually released is the one that works better. At the end of the day, the one opinion I'm most interested in is the one opinion that can no longer be given. Before his death in 1991, Howard gave no interviews that I've been able to find surrounding the Little Shop film, much less its ending, and there's nothing I was able to find in the Library of Congress's collection that features his thoughts on the whole ordeal. In fact, with the exception of one brief letter from the project's original director, John Landis, informing Howard he was no longer involved, and a handful of brief notes to and from Frank in the pages of various screenplay drafts, I couldn't find any correspondences surrounding the film's production. The only brief insights I was able to find are from a lecture Howard gave to the production staff of The Little Mermaid on April 28, 1987. While speaking about the difficulties of crafting a live-action film musical, where the audience is just asked to believe that the characters just burst out into song, Howard said, It's a very, very, very tricky medium. Little Shop maybe gets away with it, or at least partially does. I think the first half of the film does get away with it, because there's a level of unreality to the whole thing. As for the original ending, for that, we have to go back to where the series started. Speaking about the moment in The Little Mermaid, when the lyrics to Ariel's I Want Song transitioned from part of that world to part of your world, Howard said, It's neat when a song can turn around later on. When a song can turn on itself. You can build a lyric idea that later on can just twist a little bit and mean something else and develop at another point in the story. It's a musical comedy device. A, a good example is Somewhere That's Green, which has the lead line, Somewhere That's Green so that, at the end of the story, she can go, Someday I'll be somewhere that's green. And it means in the plant, which is green, and dead, and part of the monster. And that's the joke. But also, when it happens in the theater, it really works. It's not in the film, by the way, because she lives. Boo. This has been Season 1 of Off the Gutting Room Floor. The voice of Howard Ashman was Davis, host of Jacks of Trades. Follow Jacks of Trades on Twitter at Jacks Trades Pod. The voice of Seymour was Ryan, host of Rumor Flies. Follow Rumor Flies on Twitter at Rumor Flies. The voice of Frank Oz was Greg, founder of In Depth Media and producer of Jacks of Trades and Rumor Flies. Find out more about In Depth Media at FilmInDepth.com. The voice of Alan Menken was Robin, host of The Trail Went Cold. Follow him and his show at Robin underscore Water on Twitter. The voice of David Geffen was Rob, host of Our Strange Guys and Dakota, a music podcast. Follow Our Strange Guys at Our Strange Guys and Dakota at Dakota Podcast on Twitter. The voice of Audrey was Samantha, host of Perhaps It's You. Follow Perhaps It's You on Twitter at Perhaps It's You. Prologue variations were read by Garrett, founder of Orange Cow Productions. Find out more about Garrett and his work at orangecow.org. Opening and closing theme, Always Slept So Soundly, is by Sarasu, off the EP, Domestications. He can be found at soundcloud.com slash and on Twitter, at Sarasu Music. Got corrections? Want to get in touch? Shoot me a message at Joss Hosky on Twitter, or send an email to cuttingroompod at gmail.com. And to stay updated on the upcoming season, and to see unused materials, follow the show at Pod on Twitter. Want to support the show and what I do? Share the show with your friends, or leave a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. To find transcripts and any corrections, visit cuttingroompod.tumblr.com. Thank you.
Clarence, do you know why the lady went into the pizza parlor? They had free delivery? No, this one wasn't pregnant. As thyself. Manga use gunpowder. Not sleep powder.